This is the Canadian Tax Podcast, episode number four, with me, Cameron Ware. Good morning. Happy Monday. It is the week of March 22nd. Like always, we'll lead with the headlines. Item number one, CRA and social media. Uh, Over on the CBC, article was released uh, talking about CRA reviewing and looking at people's social media accounts and seeing if it ties to, uh, we'll say, their lifestyles. Quote, uh, CRA is jumping on hundreds of Canada's top social media influencers' pages, parsing their content to spot any obvious signs of wealth or gifts. Then they open up the individual's tax filings and compare what they see online with what the person previously declared as earnings. Like I said, these this is CBC taking advantage of it being tax season right now. People are, are looking at those headlines. This really isn't any different from what we in the industry call lifestyle audits. It's basically, they look at what you do. Um, a good one is postal codes. They <laughs> CRA will pay attention to what postal code you have and then uh, look at what your declared income is. As we all know, certain postal codes uh, typically are, are pretty fancy, pretty flashy. Um, and if you're saying you have zero, zero dollars in income, that'll, that'll get you on CRA's radar. Uh, they're basically just doing that. The CRA is doing that, uh, except they're using social media accounts instead of uh, postal codes in this case. Uh, so from, from the review here, looks like there's a, a team of about 60 people that uh, CRA's put together on this, and they're doing some exploratory audits with the intention to ID and test the best practices and, uh, and techniques uh, in terms of reviewing these social media accounts and things like that. So far, it looks like they've reassessed about $500,000, which it sounds sounds like a lot. Uh, it says, uh, just looking at the notes here, did about 40 audits and pulled up about 500000 in uh, uh, reassessed back taxes, that kind of thing. 500000 it, it again, it sounds like a big number. CRA gets that from one public company audit. So chasing around a bunch of uh, Instagram influencers to try to generate money. I mean, it sounds good on paper, but you got to wonder if maybe that, uh, you know, those 40 people wouldn't be better off tasked with, uh, you know, chasing, chasing some public companies and doing some work there. Separately, we've got the usual concerns about sort of some privacy stuff. I mean, if you're reviewing, CRA is reviewing social media accounts of people. These aren't people that have quote unquote being reassessed. It's just your average Canadian and you've got a government reviewing social media accounts of someone that hasn't been reassessed. They haven't formally received any paperwork that they've done saying they've done anything wrong. And yet here CRA is looking into the individuals. So, I mean, again, it's no different than maybe a lifestyle audit, like I was saying with the postal codes, but something to think about in terms of uh, having the the government look at your stuff. Uh, Item number two on my list here, just a quickie. The IRS has, uh, last week, they issued a filing extension, which if you're a cross-border guy, uh, bad joke, but this is not an extension to be confused with the usual filing extension. This is actually just a a pushing of the April 15th filing deadline. They've now moved that to May 17th. Um, If up here, I mean, file your usual extensions like like normal, but yeah, I'm chatting with some of the U.S. preparers. A lot of them aren't thrilled. Uh, there's been a lot of rumors, well, more than rumors, it's confirmed. There's still 2019 returns that haven't been processed by uh, by the IRS. Some of the more complicated ones, those are still outstanding. And here we are in tax year 2020. So by pushing this deadline, 
uh, I think it's only going to cause more more headaches for our preparer friends down south. But hey, it is it is what it is. Uh, next item here, I've got the uh, this is another CBC article. Uh, looking at my notes, uh, Canadian banks reporting to the IRS, and so in more detail. What we've got here is the, the issue of the Canadian banks are actually reporting numbers to the IRS that are not required to be reported, and they're doing it anyway. Uh, we've got uh, basically what, what's going on here is if you're a Canadian resident but a U.S. citizen, so in other words, you're an American living in Canada, you're paying tax in Canada, doing that kind of stuff. Uh, if you have a bank account that is $50,000 or over in uh, uh, technically it's American currency, but Anyway, if it's if it's got a balance of fifty grand or over, um, the Canadian bank is obligated to report that to um, CRA through the uh, what's called the uh, Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act or FATCA. Basically, Canadian government signed on to agreement with uh, the states, and it's not just Canada. This is this is worldwide. Um, the IRS has done this this sharing agreement with with everybody, and typically it's reciprocated. That's one of the reasons that governments do this. Uh, but in this case, yeah, fifty thousand is supposed to be the threshold. And uh, looking at the numbers here, on of about nine hundred thousand accounts that were reported by CRA to the IRS. 615,000 of those were under the threshold. So in other words, two, two-thirds of the information going out to the IRS wasn't necessary or needed. Uh, the banks just did it, uh, did it anyway. I've got a quote here by, what's, there we go, I'm just pulling up my numbers here. CRA contact, uh, Christopher Duty, uh, spokesperson for, for the CRA, quote, the reporting financial institutions have the discretion to apply or not apply the dollar thresholds negotiated in the agreement and as provided by domestic legislation. So it's a tactful way of saying the banks are going to do whatever the heck the banks want to do. Uh, they can do whatever they want. And if you know anything about Canadian banks, they're going to cover their butts. They do a lot of business with, uh, with the states. I mean, you've got TD and RBC pushing hard to be U.S. banks in a sense, they're not going to compromise that business by, we'll say, standing up for uh, for Canadians and and their their privacy. Uh, the banks are going to do whatever they can to stay on on side of, uh, uh, basically, stay on on the IRS's good side. Why is CRA reporting basically Canadian uh, Canadian residents' information to the IRS? Why is CRA acting as an arm of the IRS? For lack of a better term, it's the U.S. runs everything right now uh, across the world in terms of the financial sector. Uh, you want to make big money, you play by the U.S. rules. Just ask Switzerland. <laughs> Those guys came on board uh, not because they wanted to, but because they had to. Basically, the U.S. just says play ball or else and uh, there's too much money involved for, for those banks not to get a piece of that business. So they've all gone along with the uh, the FATCA rules for the most part. Next item, we have a uh, gross negligence case from CBC. Looks like this week we're doing all CBC stuff. At least those were the engaging headlines. Uh, we have a Mrs. Bowker who in 2012 engaged a, I guess, a consulting firm. They, I didn't see the letter CPA beside anyone, but 2012 to, to file her stuff, they submitted an amended return for her 2010 tax year claiming capital losses of about $300,000 and a business loss of about $600,000. 
2014 came around. CRA said, no, 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 we're going to, uh, we're going to review that. They threw out both capital loss and business loss and subsequently filed a, about $139,000 in gross negligence penalties. This, of course, got litigated and went to tax court. And basically, for lack of a better term, it was, were these uh, negligence penalties legit or not? I, I won't go through the details here. What happened was uh, the court is on file, uh, just cherry-picking the quote from it. Court determined that while Mrs. Bowker made some mistakes, her conduct did not markedly depart from what would be expected from a reasonable and responsible taxpayer in the circumstances. As such, the court finds that Mrs. Bowker did not under circumstances amounting to gross negligence, participate in the making of false statements on her 2010 amended tax return. So what was interesting about this case, and not so much the case itself, it was more of a, we'll call it legalese in terms of what is what is negligence, what is gross negligence on behalf of uh, you know a reasonable person test, all that good stuff. What jumped out to me was more so the fact that it took almost... Uh, so what we're 2020 and this was resolved or 2021, this was resolved just last month. It looks like this took at least, we'll say at least six years to resolve. So you have a $140,000 penalty floating over your head and it takes the court seven years to, to work through this separately. What, what was also interesting was this, this firm Again, I hesitate to use that term, but it, it was an outfit. There was more than one guy there uh, doing this stuff. In in aggregate, these guys filed one hundred ninety two million dollars in one hundred ninety two million in fake refunds. Uh, was what was requested. Only fifty three thousand of that was actually refunded by CRA. So what that says to me was CRA knew what was going on. They basically reviewed all of these claims, pretty much all of them and denied all of them. And instead of leaving it at that, they then turned around and started chasing the people that not only filed the returns, because this this firm, uh, Mr. Damara and a bunch of others there, they all got in serious trouble. Uh, There's some some uh, uh, prison time for some of these guys. Not only did CRA didn't leave it there, they started to pursue the clients as well, saying, well, these clients should have known better. And uh, Mrs. Bowker is not the only one who has one of these claims sitting overhead. There's a whole bunch of other litigants that are in the process of, of trying to get these resolved too, and they're still outstanding. So seven years later, this stuff is, is still going on. The takeaway here, don't just sign whatever's in front of you. I know a lot of clients, you have a good relationship with your accountant. You're not too worried about the numbers. Make sure that if you don't have a good relationship with your accountant, you're, you're new to the firm, you know, some, some, uh, some outfit decides to pitch something that's, you know, too good to be true, that kind of thing. You need to look at the numbers and make sure that it's reasonable in the circumstances. Uh, otherwise you open yourself up to, to this stuff. And yeah, in the end, uh, Mrs. Bowker was, was fine. Uh, but we'll say seven years of, of the stress of going to bed every night thinking, I might have a six-figure penalty bill to pay a CRA uh, in the next week. Seven years of that, no thanks. So just pay attention to your numbers, make sure you know what's going on, and uh, we'll go from there. Now, uh, moving on to questions. Uh, last week, I was hit with this more than more than once. 
uh, home office just keeps, it's a change for this year's tax season. Home office just keeps coming up and up and up. So I was told, can you explain this home office thing again? I want to know about the $2 a day thing. And so just to keep it really simple, really easy. If you worked from home for two weeks out of any month, basically it had to be a work from home for 50% of the month in a, in a four week period. If you worked from home for two weeks straight, you're good to go. That allows you to qualify for the $2 a day uh, work from home uh, claim. All that's involved, you fill out the T777S. It's really simple. There's two sections on there. There's a part one and a part two. Each uh, denotes a, a way you're going to make the claim. Part one is the flat $2 a day for a maximum of 200 days. It's just to check the box. You just check the box, say I'm doing this one, and put in the number of days that you work from home. Uh, multiply that by two, and that's your deduction. There's uh, there's no paperwork. There's no there's nothing needed from your employer. Nothing like that. It's just simply a check the box, put your number in, call it good. My recommendation is put a calendar aside, get a red sharpie out, X off the days that you work from home. Make it easy. Have a little bit of a paper trail. Alternatively, you can do the more detailed method. Uh, that's going to involve adding up all of your receipts, uh, getting a signed form from your employer saying that you're uh, you're able to make uh, or, or claim uh, work from home expenses. The difference between the two, honestly, is you're probably going to find that once you filled out the detailed method for most clients, your claim is probably going to wind up being less than if you just done the flat uh, two dollars. CRA has a really good calculator. It's linked here in the show notes. You can check it out on over on our website there. Run both scenarios. Pick the one that's best for you. Just remember that if you're going to go the detailed route, you need to save all of your paperwork. You need to have a form signed, that kind of thing. If you go the flat rate, there's you don't have to do anything. Is basically what it comes down to. Next question. We have, uh, again, digging through my paperwork here. Uh, GST and uh, small business. The uh, listener asked, said, I've just, uh, I've got a business. I just crossed the $30,000 in uh, uh, revenue for, for the year. So uh, now I need to charge some GST and I've got some questions. If, uh, so suppose I've earned up to $29,000 and didn't charge GST on that. And then I get a new client who pays me $2,000. So the clients can be at 31, 31K. It says, what, what do I do? How, how does that work? Uh, second, I'm selling online services, not a physical product. Uh, do I need to collect GST from American clients? So I'll do this in two parts. The first one is, it, it's simple. As soon as you pass the 30,000 threshold, you need to register. So the difficult part in this is there's going to be a timing delay between when you register and when you've invoiced your clients. So you might have some stragglers uh, that are sort of pre, pre-GST registration that, uh, you know, around 29000 you sent out a few invoices, some paid before, or you invoiced some, invoiced some before you got your GST number. What I say is be proactive on this. Uh, technically, what it's going to be is every every client prior to the thirty thousand is not going to have GST. Everything after is. Uh, you might need to do some uh, interesting tracking to figure that out. What I do around here is I tell clients, add up your numbers, pay attention. Once you're close to twenty six thousand, go register. Uh, especially if you know you're going to get uh, a few more 
you, you have more jobs for the year. Uh, you, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, six months into the year and you're bumping up close to the 30 marker, I say use, use 26,000 as the, uh, as a threshold. Once you're there, get the GST number and go from there. Some guys say, well, what if, you know, I, I don't want to collect GST and it might just be a headache if I don't actually go over the 30,000 indirectly. Once you're registered, you're going to be able to claim, um, ITC expenses on, uh, so any GST that you pay on your expenses, you'll be able to claim those. So indirectly, there's a bit of a benefit there. Yes, there's a bit more compliance, but it's really not, once you know what's going on and how to, um, I guess how CRA expects to be, you know, what paperwork to fill out, uh, how they expect to be paid, that kind of thing. It's really not that it's not any more involved than just paying your regular taxes. So like I say, it's, it's a lot easier to be proactive. 26,000 is your threshold. Once you're bumping up against it, go get registered. It just saves a lot of headache down the road. Secondly, uh, do you need to collect GST from Americans? No, but what you need to watch is, uh, American sales are technically not GST exempt like say medical sales or something like that. American sales are what's called zero rated. So even though you're making sales to Americans, uh, they're not paying it, but you still need to technically have a GST number. It doesn't make a lot of sense because of course you're not collecting things, but it is what it is. So just remember that's a zero rated sale and technically it's, it's um, GST applicable. It's just the GST rate applied is 0%. So that's uh, that's how that works there. Speaking of American or foreign currency, uh, we had a few questions about uh, foreign exchange, how to deal with um, you know getting U.S. dollars and that kind of thing. Uh, what what happens is CRA only cares about foreign exchange when the how as they how they describe it is when the transaction occurs. So in normal people speak. All CRA cares is when you actually get or lose money. Uh, they don't care about paper gains or losses or, or what we in the business call unrealized gains. So if you're holding U.S. currency, but you don't do anything with it, and then at the end of the year, it's worth a bit more than, than when you first acquired it. It, does, it doesn't matter. All that matters is when you swap U.S. currency, physically swap U.S. currency, you know, you, you, you transfer it from one bank account in U.S. dollars, and it goes into your Canadian account in Canadian dollars. Uh, that's a that's a real transaction. Those are the ones that CRA cares about. So, in, in with that in mind, you're looking at probably most likely for for we'll say the average client, you're looking at three situations where you're going to need to worry about uh, foreign exchange uh, gains or losses. Number one is probably the most common. You have a U.S. dollar brokerage account, so you're buying and selling U.S. shares in uh, in U.S. dollars. Typically, you're going to have some foreign exchange when you buy something. Uh, you need to convert it to um, from U.S. dollars, convert it to to Canadian to get your Canadian uh, cost basis. And then separately, once if and when you sell that stock and you get U.S. dollars for it, you need to convert that to Canadian dollars as well. The difference between your Canadian dollar proceeds, uh, translated proceeds, and your Canadian dollar translated ACB, that is going to be your capital gain. And you're going to report that on your uh, your Schedule 3 as a, a capital gain. Uh, similar to above a little bit, uh, currency trading. So you're not trading stocks, but you're buying and, sh uh, buying and selling blocks of currency. Functionally, it's exactly the same thing. You, you buy a block of currency, translate that to Canadian dollars, there's your ACB. 
if and when you get around to selling it, uh, you sell that block of currency, you get some uh, US dollars, convert that to Canadian, you have a Canadian cost basis, you have a Canadian proceeds, uh, subtract one from the other, and you've got your uh, capital gain. Hopefully it's capital gain. I mean, you'd have capital loss too, but same thing. Go on your schedule three, report it there as a capital gain. And then lastly, if you're a day trader uh, doing currencies, um, in, a, in a way stocks as well, but let's say you're trading uh, uh, currencies as your day job and that's what you do. This is going to be not a capital loss or a capital gain, but instead it's going to be a business transaction. So uh, business income, you're going to report it self-employed income on your T2125, most likely your, your line 162 as business income. And same thing, convert the um, your, your quote-unquote inventory, whatever it was, stocks, currency, that kind of thing. You need to convert that when you buy it over to Canadian dollars to get your Canadian ACB. Uh, any proceeds that you receive on sale, convert that to Canadian, that is your um, uh, Canadian dollar income, subtract one from the other, and that's going to be your your business income. So that basically is it. Uh, so we'll wrap things up for today. If you have any questions, send them into questions at canadiantaxpodcast.ca or find us over on Twitter. This is Canadian Tax Podcast. Thanks for listening. This commentary is for general informational purposes only and deals with complicated and time-sensitive info that may not apply to your situation. Tax rules are always changing and this information may not be current. Tax is complicated. This information is not tax advice. Don't rely on this info to make tax decisions. Hire a professional to help you. For more info, see canadiantaxpodcast.ca slash disclaimer.